Hello, this is Brett Martin from the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. I do apologize for the late posting of our latest episode, but you know, it is Christmas time and things do get busy. This past Sunday, we preached on 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. The title of the message is How the World Treats Us. Please enjoy and have a Merry Christmas. Bibles and turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, it is the Sunday before Christmas. So most people would say, oh, the pastor needs to preach a Christmas message. Normally I would, but uh, uh, the Lord didn't want me to do that today. The Lord wants me to continue with this. He has a reason for it. Uh, I'm not preaching a Christmas message the Sunday before Christmas, so they're going to come get my pastor's license. They're going to take, take it away from me. First Peter chapter 2. If you have your places there, I'm going to ask you to stand one last time in respect and reverence to the Word of God. Once again, just like last Sunday, we're just going to do two verses this morning. Verses 11 and 12 of First Peter chapter 2. The Bible says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. The title of the message this morning is How the World Sees Us. How the World Sees Us. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we're thankful to gather in your house. Lord, we are thankful for Christmas, Lord. The time that we as Christians, we celebrate this time as uh, the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, Lord. But Lord, this morning I pray that you'd be with the preaching of the Bible. I pray the Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds. And Lord, I pray that we get something from the Word of God today that we can apply in our lives. Be with us. Help us to receive your Word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. As I'm going through this mess, this series, um, I was at first, I was trying to make all the titles of these messages in this series behind enemy lines. I was trying to make all the titles of these messages in in T-I-O-N, in shun. We had appreciation and transformation and identification. I'm officially not doing that anymore <laughs> because that is kind of hard to come up with a word that ends in shun for all these messages. So I'm officially not doing that anymore. And like I said, normally I'd preach a Christmas message. I usually do every year. The Sunday before Christmas, you get a Christmas message. But for some reason, the Lord wants me to do this. And, and I'm going to do what the Lord wants me to do. Now, when I worked in college, I had a lot of jobs. I was an armed security guard. I was a telemarketer. I packed boxes for Sears. I did a whole bunch of jobs. One job that I had, I hate to admit it to you, I had a job as one of, I was one of the most hated professions in America today. Me, Brett Martin, when I was in college, I was a telemarketer. <laughs> I was a telemarketer. And they would bring us in there and they would take us into the room and they would teach us how to talk to people. They would say, they would give us scripts, and they'd say, if they say this, then you respond with this. If they say this, then you respond with this. And they would teach us constantly 
how to manipulate people into getting what they want. Let me give you a little free advice here. This won't cost you anything. Never give a telemarketer your birthday. You telemarketer, you give a telemarketer your birthday, that telemarketer can sign you up for anything they want to. Never give your birthday out over the phone. That was free. The rest of this will cost you. No. Um, but, you know, they, they, would, they would teach us how to talk to people and how to interact with our callers. And what Peter's doing here is he's, he's telling us how to interact with the world around us. Like I said, we're behind enemy lines. We're strangers and pilgrims. We don't belong here. We're in a place where they don't want us. And now he's teaching us how to interact with, uh, with, with, these, with the world. And as the book progresses, he's going to go into more and more detail. So, so once again, just like the other Sunday, uh, there's just two verses we're going to go over. And th there's a lot to unpack in these two verses. And I'll tell you something else about this message. Is this, this message, there really isn't a structure to this message. You guys know me. I like my points and I like my subpoints. Point one, two, three, subpoint A, B, C, subset point. You know, I love that. I love an outline. I love to do it. But you know, this Bible's not written that way most of the time. The Bible, sometimes in the Word of God, there's, there's no structure to it. So I fight it. Just preach the Bible. So that's what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to preach these two, two verses at you. Just some, some thoughts I want to pull out from these statements in these verses. Let's look at verse 11. It says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. You know, it's interesting that so much of the New Testament tells me to stay away from sin. So much of the New Testament, that's interesting, tells me. It says, lay aside this. Uh, instead of doing that, do this over here. Do these things instead. It's, it goes through a lot of, of effort telling me to stay away from sin. And this is because the process of sanctification, yes, there is a process. And when I get saved, the Holy Spirit comes inside of me. And the process of sanctification starts. So there is a sanctification process. And yes, I am going to be a changed person. When you get saved, you are not the same. You are different. But we would be naive to think that we're not going to face battles of sin. When you get saved and the Holy Spirit comes inside of you, you're still going to fight these battles. You're still going to fight these battles of sin, and you're going to fight a battle where you could yield to sin. So here when Peter says beseech, when he says that word beseech, you know what he's basically doing? He's basically begging us. He's begging us. He's begging us to abstain from fleshly Lust. And then it gives us the reason. I want you to, I'm begging you to abstain from fleshly lust. And now I'm going to give you the reason. He says, because they war against the soul. So what does he want us to do? He wants us to take these fleshly lusts seriously. This is a serious issue here. These fleshly lusts, they're not just innocent little temptations. They're not just little indulgences that I partake in and it's no big deal. It's not like, you know, oh, you know, I really deserve this, so I'm going to do this over here, but it's going to be okay. I can control it when that's not how sin works. 
These little fleshly lusts, these aren't just little bitty indulgences, and these aren't just little insignificant temptations. These are heavenly armed mercenaries that want to slit your throat and destroy your life. That's what these fleshly lusts are. And, you know, we see an example of this back in Genesis 4-6. Genesis 4-6, we see Cain, he's experiencing this battle with temptation. You know, in the story of Cain, we are introduced to the beginning of the two world religions. Some people say, oh, there are multiple world religions. No, there are not. At the base, there are only two world religions, the religion of Cain and the religion of Abel. The religion of Cain, so Cain's religion and Cain's salvation is based on man's works and what can I do to be righteous. So that's one religion. And then you have Abel's religion and Abel's salvation. And Abel's religion and Abel's salvation is based on the same thing that our salvation is based on. There are people, let me tell you something I am not. I am not a dispensationalist. I'm not. A dispensationalist, you know, we got this, dispa- this dis- dispensation, this time period here, and this dispensation here, and this dispensation in the future. Now, look, I'm all for divvying up different time periods. But what dispensationalists usually say is they say, in this disp- dispensation, this is how people got saved. In this dispensation, this is how people get saved. And this dispensation in the future, this is how people will get saved. People get from the beginning of time to the end of time. People get saved the same way. We all need three things to get saved. Our salvation is three things. Number one, it is grace. We don't deserve it. Number two, it is faith, not of works. Faith is not a work. So it's grace, faith, and three is blood. Those are three things you need for salvation. The blood of the lamb. Of course, our lamb is is Jesus Christ. So here we have Cain, and he brings his offering, and he brings the fruits, and he brings the vegetables, and the best he has. He worked hard. He labored hard for it, and he sets that out, and God did not accept his offering. Something begins to stir in Cain, and God sees it. So God says in Genesis 4, 6, God says to Cain, And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be to be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. What is God telling Cain? God saying, Cain, look, sin... It's lying, right, it's lying right outside that figurative door. God is saying, Cain, sin is right there. Sin is lying there. It's waiting on you, Cain. If you let that sin in your life, it will rule over you. God is saying, Cain, don't let that sin in. That sin will rule over you. Instead, you need to rule over the sin. We think, I can let a little bit of sin in. If I let a little bit of sin in in my life, I can control it. I can control it that way by letting it in. You will never control sin by letting it in. It will always control you. 
because sin is like a cancer. It spreads into other areas of your life and it grows and it festers and it gets worse. You can't control sin by letting it in your life. It's lying at the door. Don't let it in. The only way you can control sin is if you go over there and you start locking the deadbolts and you put the chain on, you put the kickstand up and you reinforce that door where that sin can't come in. That's how you control sin. Because it's lying at the door waiting to come in, waiting to take over your life. And you are not going to, uh, to control it by letting it in your life. Whoever commits to sin is a slave to sin. You can't control it, sin by letting it in. It will always control you. Back at 1 Peter 2, I want you to see that these fleshly lusts, they war after our soul. We see that other places in Scripture too. Galatians 5.17, these, these, we see these fleshly lusts, they battle against the Spirit. Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Now, that word lust, that word lust, it means strong desire. That's all that word means. We, we hear the word lust and we automatically think of sexual sin. However, this is not the case. All lust is is a strong desire. So the Bible is saying that these desires of my flesh, they are specifically targeted at my spirit. Have you ever known somebody that they won't go after anybody else, but they'll go after you? They won't attack anybody else, but they'll attack you. And it's just like they live and wake up every day just to attack you. Ever know anybody like that? Well, that's what these fleshly lusts are. They live and breathe every day to attack our spirit. There's another example of this in 2 Peter 2, 7 and 8. It says, And delivered just lot... Vexed with filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. So look, Lot may surprise you, Lot was a saved man. Lot was a righteous man. Yes, Lot moved to Sodom and Gomorrah. Yes, Lot got drunk and had an incestual relationship with his daughters and made the nation of Moab. Yes, Lot did all these things. There's no record in the Bible where Lot ever asked forgiveness or said, I'm sorry, but Lot is saved. And that tells us that even saved people can fall off the rails. But the Bible says in more places than one that Lot was a saved man. So Lot is a saved man. He moved into Sodom. And every day he would wake up and he would see that sin. The Bible says that Lot was vexed with that sin. What that means is Lot would see the sin around him and he would get sick to his stomach. You ever see someone sin and just get sick to your stomach? You ever hear someone just spread filth? and talk lies about God, and talk lies about His Word. It just makes you, just makes you sick to your stomach. This, this saved man, this, this wickedness all around him, it made him sick to his stomach. And, you know, maybe this was his conscience telling him that this was wrong. And, 
maybe this was a clue that he should have left, but for whatever reason, he didn't. But for Lot, just being close to that sin was enough to harm him. So if being close to the sin is enough to harm us, how much more harm would it be if we committed the sin? If just being close to us, close to the sin is enough to harm us, how much more harm would it be if we, can, if we commit that sin? We can relate to that. We walk into a place and there's a bunch of drinking and cussing and fighting and we're like, nah, this isn't the place for me. Unless it's the family reunion, then we're used to it. You know, but, you know, if, if, if all that can be harm to your soul, then how much more would it be committing to sin? Make no mistake, there is a war against your soul, a constant, real war. Sin wants to make your Christian life as miserable as possible. Satan cannot snatch you out of the hand of Jesus, but Satan wants to make your life as unpleasant as he possibly can. The Bible says abstain from fleshly lusts or fleshly desires. So, so fleshly lusts, it's not, of course, we talked about already, it's not just sexual desires. But then again, it's not just physical desires either. I'm going to go back to Galatians 5.17 and read some there. Listen to this. This is going to give you a list of some, not all, but some of the fleshly lusts out there. Galatians 5.17. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are contrary one to another, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the spirit... Ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Listen to this list. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lavishness, idolatry, uh, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revilings, and such alike. Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. All of these sins, these are all examples of sins of the flesh. And, and, and then it says that that's not the end of the list. It's not a comprehensive list. He says the words, and such like. He's saying there's more. <coughs> there, there's more to that. Look, sin is such a huge danger to Christians. It is a big, sometimes we don't think how dangerous sin is to us. It's a constant, it's a real battle that they're in. And that's why Peter tells us, what does he tell us to do? He says, abstain from it. You know what abstain means? Abstain means to stay away from it entirely. Our desire should be to stay away from sin completely. Because once sin gets a foothold in your life, it will consume your life. We're all different. We all have struggles, and they're different struggles. Not everybody has the same struggle. And we know what our struggle is. We live in a day where we walk around with these phones... And these phones have 
unlimited, unrestricted access to the internet. Now, for a lot of people, that's no problem. They can walk around with a phone with that un unrestricted access to the internet and it's, it's, it's no problem. For other people though, it's a temptation. For some people, it's a temptation. So how in the world can you abstain from a phone in today? If I, man, if I didn't have my phone, I don't know what I would do. I literally, I don't know what I did before it, you know? Um, but uh, how do you abstain from that then? Well, it's very simple. You hold yourself accountable. You go to your spouse whom you love and you trust and you say, look, take my phone. I need you to put a parental lock on my phone. Keep the password and don't tell me what it is. Very simple. You've just abstained from it. You've taken that temptation off of yourself, and there's no shame in doing that. There's no shame in admitting that you need help and seeking that help and getting that help, putting yourself in a position where you can abstain from it. Now look, I'm from Mississippi. I'm a Mississippi boy. Down here in Louisiana, y'all do things a little different. And one way is... Man, you go in, no matter what store you go in, man, there's so much alcohol in these stores. I mean, you go to the dollar store and you can get some alcohol. I ain't talking about beer. I'm talking about the hard stuff. Now, now I'll tell you, I can walk past the alcohol aisle and it not phase me not one bit. I won't even take a second look at it. But maybe for an alcoholic, maybe it's not wise to walk down that aisle. Um, I used to not... My wife would go to, I would follow my wife in the, in the grocery store in Walmart, but when she went down the makeup aisle with the lights, of, I would not go down the makeup aisle with her. I, I would, I don't know, it felt weird. What's that big dude doing in the makeup aisle? So I'd stay at the end of it and just tell, tell me when you're done. But maybe if, if you have a trouble with that, maybe you should stay away from that aisle. I want you to also notice in this scripture that he calls us strangers and pilgrims. And another, another version, you might have sojourners and pilgrims. And, and these words have two sides of meaning to us. A stranger means I'm on my way to a new land. And pilgrim means that I'm not part of the world I'm in. Jesus said we are in the world, but we are not of the world. We are not settlers in this world. We are just strangers, we're pilgrims, we're passing through. Now let me give you a term. <clears throat> we here at Chesapeake Baptist Church, among other things, we are pre-millennialists. So what does that mean? A pre-millennialist pre is somebody that believes that the Bible teaches that Jesus is going to come back before this millennial reign, and he will be here during his millennial reign. There are other people out there, the Christians like us, who believe in their post-millennialists. And they believe that Jesus will come back at the end of the millennial reign. I have a very good friend who I went to Bible college with. We grew up in the same church, called to preach in the same church. He's pastoring a church in Alabama. He believes this. Believes that Jesus will come back after the millennial reign, thus meaning we're in the millennial reign right now. 
and millennial, it doesn't necessarily mean, they also think that a thousand years doesn't mean a thousand years. It, 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 it means something else. But a post-millennialist will think, okay, this is the world God has for me. The world that God promised me, here it is. And they believe that they are to, to take over this world for him. You know, we not only don't believe that the Bible teaches that, but man, could you imagine that if this world was the home? If this world was what God had for us? I'm sorry, but this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. In fact, this Bible actually tells me I'm to love not the world. Now, it's not saying not to love individuals, but this sin-stained life culture, this sin-stained lifestyle that dominates this earth, that's what I'm not to love. John, 1 John 2.15, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. And the world passeth away and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So this, so this, this love not the world, I'm not supposed to love this sin-stained way of life that dominates the earth. I'm not to love that anymore. We are fighting a battle today. We are fighting a battle against sin. Why? Because it is fighting a battle against us. Verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, Glorify God in the day of visitation. Christian, let me tell you something. It's not if the world will speak evil against you. It's when the world speaks evil against you. Look, the world's going to hate me and you. The world's going to hate us. No matter what you do, the world is going to hate you. But there are ministries out there where the goal of the ministry is to get the world to love them. That's the goal of the ministry. If the world loves what you are doing, then you are doing it wrong. There's a ministry out there where the world loves you and your ministry, and then guess what? You are doing the ministry wrong. So let's say there's a church out there. And they live to, they want the world to love them. So this church gets a letter. It gets a letter from a person who didn't get saved, who isn't going to get saved. And the letter of this lost person, the, 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 the pastor or whoever's in the ministry reads a letter and it says, you know, I don't know about this whole Christian thing, but you guys are all right by me. And they hold up the letter and say, see, we must be doing something right. The world loves us. The world thinks we're nice. You know, I bet old Joel Osteen, he gets, a, he gets a lot of nice letters from unbelievers. I bet the unbelievers just love old Joel. They love him to death. But I got a feeling that there's a lot of great ministries out there that aren't getting nice letters. I believe there's a lot of good ministries out there that the world absolutely detests, that the world absolutely hates. 
I follow this pastor in California named Mike Winger. He's a little bit older than me, and uh, just a little bit. But I follow him. I like his, his quotes on Twitter, and he's kind of an apologist and talks, you know, he debates atheists and stuff. And he'll, he'll put uh, um, something on there about the evidence of creation and whatnot. And this morning, I was just reading all the just spewing hate that these atheists have toward him. And they, they spew just all this filth at him for standing up. And I'm t- that means you're doing something right. When the world loves you, you're doing something wrong. When the world hates you, you're doing something right. You know, Jesus said it in John 7, 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hateth me. You see, it's not that they hate you. It's that they hate, they hate Christ. Because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. You know what Jesus said? Jesus didn't say, oh, uh, they, they hate me because I loved them too much. Oh, they, they hate me because I heal too many people. They hate me because I talk wise. No, he says, they hate me because I testify that their works are evil. That's why they hate me. Look, telling a lost sinner that they're not that bad isn't loving. It's selfish. You want their acceptance so bad that that you love yourself more than you love them enough to tell them the truth. If old Joel allowed Jesus to preach at Lakewood Church, Jesus would split that church right down the middle. He would split it right down the middle. Everybody loved Mother Teresa. Everybody, she was just a saint and she loved everybody, all the humanitarian stuff that she did, all the good stuff, all the good she did with the poor. Let's set, let's set the Catholicism aside for a second. Set that aside just for a second. Everybody said, oh, Mother Teresa, she just did so much good and so much for poor and she helped so many people. They said, oh, they, they, she did what Jesus would have done if Jesus was down here. But somebody asked Mother Teresa, they said, Mother Teresa, what do you do when you... When you come across a Hindu or when you come across a Buddhist or you come across a Muslim, do you try to convert them, Mother Teresa? You know what Mother Teresa said? She said, no, I just try to make them a better Buddhist. I try to make them a better Hindu. I try to make them a better Muslim. Oh, so you didn't do what Jesus would have done. Um, no wonder everybody liked her. And then it says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Now, honest, it means honorable. Have your, have your conversation honorable. Whereas they speak against you as evildoers. The church is going to have accusations against it. Let, let's look at history for a second. Let's look at some accusations that were against the early church. I'm going to read for you some accusations that history tells us were accusations against the early church. Okay, here's what the early church was accused of. Number one, the early church was accused of cannibalism. They were accused of cannibalism. And this came from the fact that at their feast, they said that they symbolically ate the body of Christ. They symbolically drank the blood of Christ. Oh, there are a bunch of cannibals down there. So people saw that they were cannibals. They were accused of killing and eating a child at their feasts. They were accused of immorality and incest at their feasts. 
And you know what that came from? That came from the fact that they called their feast the agape feast. They called it the love feast. So a pagan hears love feasts and thinks, oh, well, they must be having an orgy down there. And that's where this accusation came from. Uh, They were accused of damaging trade and business wherever they went. And there's an example of that in Acts 19. Paul goes in there and he starts preaching against these idol makers and causes a riot because he is, he's uh, going after their way of life. He's going after how they make money. Uh, they were accused of breaking up families. The early Christians, the early church was accused of breaking up families. And look, families did break up, but it wasn't the Christians' fault that families break up. See, what would happen is the Christians would come and say, hey, I'm a Christian now. And the other side will say, "Okay, you're not in our family anymore. That's the reason why the families broke up. In Mormonism today, if you're married, let's say there's a husband and wife. And the husband says, "Okay, I don't want to be a Mormon anymore. The wife is instructed to try to get that husband back into Mormonism. But. If eventually they can't, then the Mormon church position is divorce him and marry another Mormon. But that goes against the Bible. In fact, the Bible actually teaches wives, if they have a lost husband, the Bible teaches to stay with that husband, to pray for that husband, to be an example to that husband. Still obey that husband, submit to his authority, don't unless he tells you to sin. The Bible has a lot of of, uh, advice in it for a wife that has a a non-believer husband, but the Bible instructs them to stay together. So the fact that families were broken up, that wasn't the the Christian's fault, Uh, but they still got blamed for it. They were accused of hatred of mankind. They were taught not to love the world. But not, but not loving the world is different than loving individuals. We're to love individuals. We're to love everybody. But we're not to love this world system. This life that's dominated by sin, that, that, you know, we're not to love that. Another thing that they were accused of was being disloyal to the government. They said, oh, those Christians in that church, those churches, they're disloyal to the government. And you know what this stemmed from? This stemmed from the fact that they would not take their little pinch of incense and throw it into the fire uh, every so often and declare Caesar as God. Well, for Christians, Christians wouldn't do that because there's only one God. It's Jesus Christ. Oh, so if they wouldn't do that, that means they were bad citizens, which if they would have if they would have let that go, they would have seen that the Christians were their best citizens who were commanded to pay taxes. But you know the thing about all those accusations? They were all false. Every single one of them. Peter is saying, look, you're going to be accused. You just make sure those accusations are false. The accusations are coming either way. You just make sure they're false. We still get accused today. I'm going to give you some accusations that we get today. These mean you are going to be a little bit more familiar with. We get accused of being homophobics. We're accused of being homophobics um, because we say that homosexuality is a sin. So we're accused of being a homophobe. 
Well, by that logic, call me a liar-phobe. Because I believe lying's a sin, too. You know, call me a liar-phobe. Call me a heterophobe, because I think fornication is a sin as well. Just because you think something is a sin doesn't mean you hate that person. It's a false accusation. Another thing that we're accused of is, oh, those, those Christians, they're judgmental and they're hateful because they teach that God hates sin and God will judge sin. True, but we also want people to be saved from their sin. We actually want people to be saved from judgment. We're accused of forcing our religion on others. Oh, they, all they want to do is just push their religion in our face. See, push it in. They want to force us all to be Christians. Force their religion upon us. When in actuality, we know it's about a personal choice. You can't force anybody to be a Christian. If they don't personally choose it on their own, then it's not real. They have to make a personal choice. We know that, but here's the deal. We just, they want us to stop. The thing is, they want us to stop talking about it. They want us to shut up about it. They want us to shut up about God and shut up about the gospel. You know, somebody sneezes and you say, bless you. And they say, man, quit trying to push your God on me. You know, and all it is is and, and just not stopping talking about it is not forcing it on one. You want to see someone force a religion on someone? You go to an Islamic country. Then you'll see somebody forcing religion on somebody. Christians don't do that. We're accused of hating and oppressing women because we don't think that men and women are identical. Well, they're not. Men and women are not identical. Oh, but that, that means we're hating them and we're oppressing them. Well, actually, men are given specific instructions not to mistreat women. In fact, in 1 Peter, we'll get to it. In 1 Peter, it tells men if they mistreat women, it'll hurt their prayer life. We'll get to that a little later on. Another thing we're accused of is we're accused of being too narrow because Jesus is the only way. That's too hard. Jesus being the only way. Well, Jesus is the only way, but it's not hard. It's actually very simple. Going to heaven and getting to heaven is easy. I don't have to beat myself up. I don't have to work really hard to get there. It's an easy way because his burden is easy and his yoke is light. Peter's saying, look, all these accusations, they're going to come at you no matter what, you just make sure they're false. They're Christian. They're, uh, he word that another way. There are churches out there that are accused of hating homosexuals, and it's the truth. There are people out there that do hate. We can't pretend that they don't exist. There are people out there that hate. But Peter's saying, don't let it be true. Somebody calls you a hater or they call you a homophobic. 
And then they come and actually, with an open mind, look at your life. They need to say, oh, these people really don't hate homosexuals. They think it's a sin, but they don't. Peter is saying, these accusations are, are going to become, but let them be unfounded. Let them be just that, false accusations. And then this last phrase, it says, that may, that may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now, this is an interesting phrase. This is interesting because basically what he's saying is, look, not everybody's going to get saved. Not everybody's going to get saved. And one day, they're going to stand before God. And they're going to look at God. And they're going to say, God, why didn't you tell me? God, why didn't you send somebody? Why didn't you show? Why didn't you show me? Why didn't you send somebody to show me? And God's going to look at them and say, I sent you Kelly. I sent you Junior. I sent you Jay. I sent you so-and-so. And the Bible says they will be without excuse, and then they will glorify God. You know, isn't it funny? Everybody glorifies God in the end. One of the most outspoken atheists in America is the son of President Ronald Reagan. One of the most outspoken atheists in America today is Ron Reagan Jr., he has an organization called Freedom From Religion. And the organization's goal is to completely keep church completely out of, out of state. When actually the point of our constitution was to keep the state out of the church. But his, his point is we want to completely, like a manger scene in a courtroom, he would be against that. That's what his organization lives and breathes for. His commercial uh, was played for his organization. It was played during the Democratic, the last Democratic debate on CNN. That's what the, the, the Democrats think of Christians. They'll run an anti-Christian commercial during their debate. That's how much they think of me and you. And at the end of this commercial, Ron Reagan Jr. looked right in the camera and said, my name is Ron Reagan and I am not afraid of burning in hell. One day, Ron Reagan will stand before God and he will say, how come you didn't show me? If you're real, how come you, I didn't see you? How, how come nobody told me? And God will show Ron Reagan everybody that he sent. And he will show Ron Reagan how hard he tried to get him saved. And he will say, I gave you a Christian father. I put all these other people around you. And Ron Reagan will be without excuse. And Ron Reagan, he will glorify God. Have your conversation honest among the Gentiles. Listen, Christian, we're not going out there for the world's approval. That's not what we're after. We're not after the world's approval. But you know what? We're not after their disapproval either. I'm not after their disapproval. 
I'm not going to back down from a confrontation, but I, I'm not going to look for a confrontation. I like what Micah 6, 8, uh, Micah 6, 8, it says, He has showed the old man what is good, what doeth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. You know what he's saying? Do right, give mercy to others, and do it with a humble attitude. I don't care about the world's approval, but at the same time, I want to be attractive to the world because I want, because I want them to want Christ. So not only do my words need to be right, but my attitude needs to be right as well. Look, you know what the bottom line is? We're not called to be monks. We're not called to live in a monastery or an ordnung or a compound. That's wrong. We live among the lost. We're called to be a light unto them. So what I'm saying today, be a light, but don't let the world tell you how to be a light because their light is darkness. Please, Christians, come. hey, uh, we just had a tsunami. We just had a, a, big, a big hurricane. A lot of people are devastated. Come help us with your humanitarian aid, but leave your gospel at home. We have to say, unfortunately, if my Jesus isn't welcome, I'm not welcome. Some won't like the light. Men never do. But by not hiding your light, Jesus will draw men unto him.